John chapter 5. We made it all the way down to verse 17 this morning. And we are going to cover verses 18 through 24 this evening. It is a continuation of this miracle that we saw today of this man by the pool who was healed, who was crippled for 38 years. And we know that this man, 38 years of not being able to be well, he came face to face with the creator of the world. He came in contact with God incarnate. And Jesus asked him, would you be made well? And, you know, he realized that man couldn't help him out. He, he was dependent on other people and that wasn't ever going to help him. And, and you could see the sense of desperation in his voice here. And with the same voice that spoke the world into creation, this is spoken to this man. And he tells, Jesus tells him to get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And, and it's miraculous here that this man was healed of this, um, of this ailment. Man couldn't do it, only God could do it. And we talked about how the physical healing is wonderful, but there's a greater miracle that takes place in spiritual healing. That when he brings a dead heart, a dead soul to life, there's nothing more miraculous than that. So even though we may never see a physical miracle in our life, if you're a Christian, you've, you've experienced the greatest miraculous thing that your dead heart was made alive. And, and then this story, this incident here in Jerusalem is really where the beginning of the persecution, the, the hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Jews began because in this event, in this story like we read today, with the healing of this man, the, the people there, they weren't excited. They weren't uh, joyous because he's now walking, but they were uh, being nitpicky. They were uh, taking their hyper-legalistic views that, uh, that this man wasn't supposed to carry his pallet on the Sabbath day. That, that is not in the law. Jesus did not violate one of the laws or he wouldn't have been perfect to impute perfect righteousness to us. So these men, these Pharisees were so wicked that they did not enjoy, they did not rejoice in the healing of this man, but they were trying to bring these laws and these rules to show their superior religious activity and not see what is actually in front of them. And then they asked him who did it. He didn't know, but later Jesus would come and he would reveal it was him that did this. And from that point on, they began to persecute him. And you know how the story ended. They accused him of working on the Sabbath, which was not allowed. It was against the law. And he answered them of the reason that he was doing these things on the Sabbath in verse 17. My father is working until now and I myself am working. And we know that this sentence alone, this answer alone, brought them to a point of wanting to kill him because of the fact of what it meant. If you remember, just really briefly, because it gives us context for this evening, you've only got a front of a page, so bear with me. He says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. You remember the Jews, they believed that the father, that, that God was working on the Sabbath. He was the one that could work on the Sabbath as he was working and maintaining the universe, holding all things together. And now Jesus comes and he says, yes, my father is working, so am I. And in that sentence alone, he claims deity. He claims that he is God. And this is where we pick up in verse 18. It says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling him, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to those whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who has ears, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. What a response from Jesus. And this isn't just the end of his response. We'll get into next week where he continues to elaborate. But this is on the heels of them wanting to kill him because he's claimed deity. And then Jesus answers with these words that you've just spoken or what you've just heard. And like we mentioned today, think about it just for a moment that the words you just heard came from the lips of the creator of the universe, God in flesh. That's miraculous that we have access and privilege to hear these words tonight. So let's pray over these verses and then we will begin to break this down and see what is really at stake here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are working and we thank you that the Son is working and the Spirit is working. The trying God is at work doing all that you please holding all things together. Lord, we thank you for that. Let our hearts rejoice in that. Let our hearts take comfort in that. And Father, we thank you for the words that we have heard tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that's in them. We thank you for the power that's in them. And I pray that, Lord, by the help of the Holy Spirit, the, sp the Spirit that leads us into truth, the one who inspired these words, Lord, that he would come and Make them more clear to us tonight. That we would see them more clearly, more deeply, more beautifully, God, than we ever have. We pray that He, the Holy Spirit, would come and teach us all things tonight. Lord, as we're desperate for You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Who knew such a simple sentence could bring such hatred to one man? And what's amazing, if you stop and really think about it, that they are seeing this Jew, this man in the flesh, claiming to be God. Think about that. That's the beauty. That's the mystery. That's the amazement of the incarnation, that the eternal God, God is spirit, and the eternal uh, second person of the Godhead, that spirit would come and join with flesh and would enter his creation. He would dwell among men. Me and Stan were talking about it after church, that these stories become more amazing when you realize that the one in these stories is the one who was there before the world was. That the one that they are talking to here is the creator of the world. The one who was there in the beginning with the Father 
and the Spirit. This is the eternal God. This is the one who has life in himself. And he, through the mystery of the incarnation, is standing face to face with these people. Once you understand that there's the, the, the depth of that, these stories and these narratives become more intense and they become more beautiful because it is God himself in this situation. He's humbled himself, took on the form of flesh and dwelt among the people. And he claims that he is the son of God. And that brings him to the point of verse 18. Therefore, for this reason, that's the reason. They were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. First of all, he was not breaking a law. We have to remind, we have to, he was not breaking a, a law of the covenant here, the Old Testament. There was nothing in this that he was doing wrong. We have to know that because as simple as it seems, we have to make these, we have to make these little specific things known because if he does, again, you have no righteousness. You don't have any righteousness if he fails to follow all the, the laws and everything that was in those commands. If he breaks one of them, he's guilty of them all. He does not have perfect righteousness and you and I don't either. So let us make that distinction. That is important. He is sinless and he's perfect. But I want you to think about this just for a second. They tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. They were trying, you'll find, they wanted to kill him. It was in their heart to kill him. And you find this as we read through the gospel accounts that many times they wanted to kill him. They were gonna kill him, but just mysteriously, they couldn't. Mysteriously, he slipped away. Mysteriously, something stopped them. Well, because it wasn't his hour. If you remember at the wedding of Cana, he says, my hour has not yet come. There is an hour that will be approaching where he will come and, and he will die on the cross. And that would be the hour that he had ordained. And that would be the hour that he gave. Uh, he ordained it all to come to pass. That was in his plan. But that hour had not yet come. And I heard this one time that I think it's amazing if you stop and think about it. That the angels of God that were doing his bidding and being there for him in all aspects that he needed. That there was a time where they were hit his becking call and they were, they were doing everything that they were commanded to do. But there was a time when there was a command from heaven for them to stand down. I mean, think about this. There was a command from God Almighty to stand down because the hour of darkness was coming. Can you imagine what it would have been for them? Just to stand by and watch God be arrested, be beaten, be taken to a cross because it was the ordained plan of God. It was the plan from the beginning. He was the, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That was plan A all along. And you know why it was plan A? Do you know why he had to, to come and to, to go through what he did and, and to suffer and to die at the hands of these wicked men? Do you know why that all was ordained? Because that was the only way he could redeem his church. That was it. You had to be redeemed by the perfect, spotless, unblemished blood. You remember that from 1 Peter? There was only one thing that was going to redeem you. And if he does not come, that does not happen. He was doing it to redeem his bride. 
the call from heaven, stand down as darkness had its hour that he allowed to happen. He gave to them so that we could be purchased, redeemed, and bought by the precious blood of the Lamb. But it was not that time. And you remember when he tells them in the garden that they come with these weapons and everything, and he's like, Why do you, what are you doing? He's like, we were together all the time in the temples, and, but nothing ever happened because your time wasn't now, but now's the time. I'm allowing this to happen. I'm allowing you to take me to the cross. You meant it for evil, but I meant it for good, for the saving of many souls. That's what we find in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, in the story there of Joseph and his brothers. They wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be God. And then he goes to verse 19 and he says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, we know that that means listen up. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Now, I told you today that we were going to talk about a little bit of a technical term in here. And I think it's important because when you come to passages like this, sometimes if you really don't know how to explain it, you can get tripped up pretty quickly. Because someone who is going to attack the Bible and the deity of Christ could take a verse like this and say, that doesn't make any sense. Now, we just heard that Jesus said he's God. He's equal with God. But in this verse, it says the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing, he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Let me get just a little bit technical just for a little bit, but I think it's important, okay? There's two really views or aspects of the Trinity that I think come into play here that need to be addressed. And these may be words that you've never heard of before. And you may think, well, that's, what are we doing? Why are we talking in, in, in terms like this? But it's important to help understand this. We're gonna talk about, in, in view of the Trinity, two terms the ontological view of the Trinity and the economic view of the Trinity. And you say, that doesn't seem very fun. And what's the point of that? Well, there's a great importance to that because you see it in verses like this. It explains how the, how the son can say, I can do nothing of myself. And you can see how he does the will of the father. And it's almost like he's in submission to the will of the father, but how can they be equal? And it comes down to these two terms, really. An ontological view of the Trinity or in a definition of the Trinity, that is the, basically it's the being of God. So when we talk about the ontological view, it's the being of God. And, and if you start to ask yourself, how's the best way to describe the Trinity? It is, this is the best expl explanation that I think there can be in the most simple terms. It is one being, one being is God. But in that one being, there are three divine persons, co-equal, co-eternal. So when we're talking about the ontological view, it is the being of God, which is one. That's when he says in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one. He is one being. It is one God. We don't believe, we are monotheistic. We do not believe in many gods. We believe in one God. He is one being. That's the ontological aspect of the Trinity. And then we come down and we look at the economic uh, term of the Trinity. In this term that we come into, to, to view here, it comes from the Greek word, which means household management or roles within a house. So not only do we have the one being of God, but then we get down to the economic view of God, 
which is the roles. That each person of the, the Trinity has different roles. It's the household management, if you will. And we see this. We see that God is one, but we see that there are delineations in their roles. Like, for example, the Bible says that the father elects. The son dies. He goes to redeem. The Holy Spirit then regenerates, seals and guides. You, you see, it's the one being of God. But within that, they have their different roles. The father spoke through the son. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit draws us back to the word, draws us back to the son. And then when we see who the son is, we know who the father is. You see, these are the different roles. And this is what is at stake here, that the father, the son and the Holy Spirit are one and they're equal, but they have different roles. And the father sent the son. That was the son's role to go and he was to live a perfect life and he was to redeem his people. He was to die on the cross and that pleased the father. The father sent the son. That's what Isaiah 53 says, that it pleased the father to crush him. He sent the son and the son went. And here he's saying that you see that there's oneness here, that the son can do nothing outside of the father. Why? Because they're one. There's the oneness. He can do nothing of himself because like John chapter 10 says, I and the Father are one. So that's why he can say, I can do nothing of my own because there's the union and the one being of God. But he was also sent. And I think this is helpful when we see passages like this that begin to talk about the different roles of God or how Jesus can say, not my will, but yours be done, because that was his role to come and to do the work on the earth, to humble himself, to be obedient to the Father. Those are the household managements that we're talking about is where we get that Greek term from. And I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps. So when you come to a passage like this and you, you say, I don't know how to explain that. How can he do nothing of himself and how can they be equal? because you have to think about what aspect you're talking about. Is it the oneness of God as a being or is it the roles that they delineate from? And that's what we see here. It says, for the father loves the son. Yes, he does. And just let me stop there. If you're a believer, guess what? He loves you the same. This is beautiful. This is the same love the father has to the son. He showed to those to whom he would die. And he shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him even greater works than these so that you will marvel. What are these greater works? We just saw a man get healed. We just saw a, we saw a boy get raised from the point of death almost. And he became well. We saw a man who was crippled for 38 years and he became well. So what is greater than these uh, miracles that we've just saw? Well, he's going to tell us what that is. And it is bringing life from death, raising from the dead. That's the greater things. And there's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more amazing than being raised from the dead. And, and that's why he springs in to these next verses. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. The father raises from the dead. The Holy Spirit can raise from the dead. But the son raises from the dead. And we're going to see that theme, that he can give life to who he wishes. 
We're going to see him raised from the dead in just a few chapters in the, in the future. If we can make it to John chapter 11, we're going to find him raising a man from death to life. You know him as Lazarus. Now, you may ask, and we were talking a little bit about this after church, how unfair it may seem to the world. How many lame people do you think was at that pool in, my, in John chapter 5 today? I bet it was packed. And here comes God with all the power to heal everyone there. But he didn't. Now, some would take that and say, we haven't done this in a while. Do you know what that they would say? And maybe you've said this before. He could have healed everyone there. A loving God would have healed everyone there. That's not fair. The Bible records one man walked home that day and the rest were stayed in the same state. Do you know why? Because the Bible tells us here very quickly, it says that he can give life to whom he wishes. He can raise from the dead physically whom he wishes. He can raise from spiritual death whoever he wishes. It is his sovereign decree. It is the sovereign will. He has freedom in that to do whatever he wants. And then we say, well, he went to Lazarus's tomb. And he just called Lazarus out of that death. He could have brought everyone out of that death. Yes, he could have. Don't ever mistake it. He could have. But he didn't. Because God has that freedom to do whatever he wants. He can heal physically whoever he wants. And if he doesn't, we cannot say that's not fair because nobody deserves anything. And we know the cry against the doctrines of grace is that's not fair. But when you read scripture and see the consistency of it, God does not owe anyone anything. Just think about this. Only one was healed that day at the pool of Bethsaida. And now we come to hear that he can raise whom he wishes from the dead. Listen to it again. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. He gives life to who he wishes. It is his sovereign will to give life to whomever he wishes. And if you're a Christian tonight, guess what? You should be on your knees like I should be on my knees, thanking God that he chose to give me life. That he chose to raise my dead heart that was dead in sin to bring it to life. He did not have to do that. But before the world was, he chose me to, for that cause. He gives life to whomever he wishes. And we see the greatest power of that uh, in raising himself from the dead. Remember when he cleansed the temple and they said, what authority do you have to do this? And he says, well, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Yes, the father was there to raise him from the dead. Yes, the spirit raised him from the dead. We have verses that say that. But don't ever forget that Jesus himself raised himself from the dead. If you stop to think about that for too long, It'll blow your mind that he raised himself from the dead. Who can do that? God, the one he's claiming to be to these people. Are you a Christian? I hope everyone here can say yes. We'll just know that if that's the case, then he gave life to you, brought you from death to life as he wished. That's the sovereignty of God. 
on full display here in verse 21. Verse 22, here comes again. Let me just get technical for a second. Again, the ontological is the being of God. The economic is the roles of God. Now we see the economic view come into place. Look what happens in verse 22. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. There's the roles. There's the delineation of the household rules or the roles, if you will. That's the economic view that they're one. But in the economic portion of that, the father has given judgment to the son. And we know this is the case. We see it in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. It says this, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Again, the section is he'll show you greater things that's raising from the dead. And then he goes into the, that the son has the authority to judge because he's been raised from the dead. And here's what I think is so amazing about this text. I mentioned it a little bit today, but I want you to really just think about it for a second. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled as He dwelled among us. These Jews that are questioning Him this day are standing before the very one whom one day will be the judge of all the world. They're standing before their judge. They're standing before God Almighty. They are putting him on trial. They are questioning him. They want to kill him. They, they despise him and they want answers from him. You know what's going to happen one day? They're going to stand before him with their mouths closed. And the same one who walked this earth that was in Jerusalem, who they were speaking to this day, their knee is going to bow. Their tongue will confess that he is who he says he is. He is God. And they will stand in judgment. And the one whom they are questioning will be the one who judges them. How amazing is this story? They're standing before the judge of all the world, judging him. Let that never be the case for us. We will stand before God. How many times have you questioned God? Judged God for what was in your life. Thought you knew better than God. How dare you and I ever question our judge. We will stand before him one day, just as these Jews will do. That's what's so amazing. They accuse Jesus of blaspheming, claiming to be God. But do you know all along what's happening? They're the ones blaspheming him. He is God. He is the judge of the world. And they are blaspheming God in the flesh. Verse 23 says, so that all will honor the Son. He's been given judgment. All judgment has been given to the Son so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you remember early on in John, we talked about it, that to be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus is God. You can't, you cannot be a true Christian and believe that he is not God. And so many religions, 
They think that he's a good teacher. They think he's a good prophet. They believe that he really lived. And that all sounds good on the surface, but if you want to get to the bottom of it, you ask this question, do you believe that Jesus is God? And only those who are, well, you have to believe it to be a Christian and and a born-again believer will declare that Jesus is God. And many will stop short. And those aren't true Christians. You cannot have the Father without the Son. And so many want to distance it. They want to believe in the, God, but they don't want any part to do with the Son. And when you can't have the, the Father without the Son, because why? They're one. They're one. And the Father sent the Son, and He's the Word. He's speaking the words of the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is in the bosom of the Father from the beginning of all things. There was no beginning of all things, but in creation at least. You got to have the Son. You remember the wedding, uh, the banquet there in Matthew chapter 22. What is that whole parable talking about? It's the king threw a banquet for who? The son. He was there to honor the son. It was the wedding feast for the son. We have to love the son because the father sent the son. And if you don't honor the son, you don't honor the father. It's just that simple. In verse 24, it says this, truly, truly, I say to you, He who uh, hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. What's the point of the main purpose of the gospel according to John? Let me read it really quickly. John chapter 30, or John 20, verse 30 through 31. Why this gospel was written. And let me remind you why we, why if you want to turn there, let me just remind you that John has a theme here. There are 98 times in the gospel according to John that the word believe is there. 248 times in the whole New Testament the word believe comes into the verses and 98 of those 248, one-third, over one-third of the times the word believe is in the New Testament is found in the gospel according to John. John wants you to believe, but what does he want you to believe? That Jesus is the Son of God, that He is deity, that He is who He says He is. Here's what it says. You've heard this, and maybe this is our big takeaway. Maybe you can quote these two verses as we're done at the ending of when we finish up John, whoever, who knows how long that will be. But here's what it says. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in these books, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing in Christ, believing in the gospel, believing in the one that was sent is what brings about eternal life. And that's what he says in verse 24. If you hear my words, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me, believes in the son, you have eternal life and does not come into judgment. We know that right now, if you're a believer, there's no condemnation on you. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation on those who believe. Why? Because you've been imputed with something. 
Currently, as we speak, the righteousness of Christ is applied to our account and we don't have any condemnation. We've passed out of judgment. We have no judgment because the Father poured out judgment and wrath upon the Son on our behalf. It says, you does not come into judgment, those who believe, but has passed out of death into life. And that's what these preceding verses are telling us. The Father raises the dead, gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. And we see that if you believe these words, there's no condemnation, there's no judgment, but you've passed out of death into life. And we see passages all through the Scripture. Uh, let me just read a few, if I may. You've heard this before, but... It never gets old to me, and I hope it doesn't get old to you. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Remember what we where we started today? We started today by saying that the physical miracle is amazing. I can't even hold any comparison to that which is the spiritual miracle of bringing someone that is dead in sin to life. God has the power to do both as He wills. But if you believe you've been brought out of death into life, and you know, that's really the story of our conversion, isn't it? It's not that we were sick and now we feel a little bit better. It's not that we were sad and now we have joy. It's that you were dead and now you're alive. That's the true meaning of what happens. That's the best way to describe it, from death to life. Because we are in union with the death and the resurrection of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you were dead in your trans tres trespasses and sins, dead, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, we could have read that verse today, couldn't we, before we played the song about mercy, because of His great love, which He loved us. And even when, you were dead in our, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You know what, listen, just hear me out for a second. You're getting ready to hear these next few verses, and I promise you, you've heard them before. You've heard them growing up. You've heard them being in church. But I want you to think about what you know about God his sovereignty, who he is, how he does what he desires. It is by grace you've been saved, not by works. It's by him who brought you from death to life. I want you to hear these next verses and really see the beauty of them because if we're not careful, we take verses that we've memorized, we take verses that we've heard all of our life, and those are the verses that we either mess up the worst or we just don't really get the depth of it because we're so used to just right on by. You are dead. He's raised you to life by his kindness. Now listen, for by grace 
you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. There's beauty and there's power in those verses. He gives life to whom he pleases. He raises from the dead spiritually those whom he desires. Because, let's be real, what can a dead man do? You can't raise yourself. And he did that. That was him. And he gets all the glory for that. We don't stand before God. We don't get to heaven. And if someone wants to ask us, well, what brings you here? Why are you here? Well, one day I made this wonderful decision. And then after making that wonderful decision, I was so faithful to him. Oh, I was so obedient to him. Oh, there were people that could have lost it, but not me. Not this guy. I'm here. Well, let me tell you, you've not been saved by grace then. If that's your view. You have been. If you've been saved, you've been saved by grace. But how weak a view you have on it. Why are you a Christian? Because he raised your dead heart to life. To allow you to respond to the gospel. If he doesn't regenerate anyone's soul, no one responds in faith. He gives life as he pleases. Remember what regeneration is. Born from above, you are made new. You are brought to life. And how is that possible? By the sovereign act of God Almighty. He brought you to life to allow you to respond to the gospel. How arrogant would it be for us to say, it was my decision that brought me here. It was my good works that kept me here. No, 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 no. You know why that we will be in heaven? It comes down to a, a very short word. Grace. That's why we'll be in heaven. Grace. Unmerited favor. You've heard that determine, uh, definition before. It means you didn't do anything to merit it. Didn't do anything to merit it. Not one thing. Let that be our heart's praise. Let that be our testimony. That when someone says, why are you a Christian? Do not let the words I proceed out of your mouth first. He brought me from death to life. He opened the eyes of my soul. He did what I couldn't do. And it's because of his mercy that I'm a Christian. That's the power of God. That's the beauty of God. And so many times, the doctrines of grace, reformed theology, whatever it may be, we get accused of being so prideful. How could you be so prideful that you're part of the elect? Anyone that ever says that, with all due respect, you do not understand what we believe. Because there's nothing prideful 
about it wasn't you. It's actually quite the opposite. It's humbling. That he would look down at a rebel sinner, unable to save himself, and out of mercy and grace, bring us to life. Why are you a Christian? Him. What beauty there is in these verses. He gives life. You must believe. And through our regeneration, that's what allows us to believe. And we come to the ending of these verses. I want you to see the picture that's taken place in these verses. This man was hopeless without Christ, and Christ has the power to bring him to physical healing. But in that, here comes the persecution from the Pharisees. Here comes the persecution from the Jews, which will only ramp up because he's declaring to be God. But he is God. He is God. And I want to end with this, and I want you to really think about this. I'm going to come back to the point that these people were questioning the one to whom they would stand in judgment for. But before, not even the father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the son. Think about that. The son has the judgment. You got to have the son or you have no hope. And these people here, the Pharisees, what have they been known for? What what are these people known for the most? Their own self-righteousness. Thinking they're good enough. Their merits are good enough. And inside their soul, there was nothing but death and dry bones. But they will stand before him. And so will we. Do you realize that tonight? I want you to stop and just think about it for a moment. Everyone in this room tonight and every human being that has ever lived will stand before God. One on one. You and him. To the believer, we, are, we don't have judgment of loss of salvation. We've been covered by the works of Christ, but we will still give an account of everything we've done on our life here. Can you imagine that? The motives to which you've done something. Maybe the motives of why you've come to church, why you gave, why you did that, why you, whatever you did, God knows. He knows man. You remember that? He knows it. And we will stand fully exposed before the judge of all, men, all the world. And you will give an account, as will I, of everything we've done as a Christian, whether good or bad. That's terrifying. Because I failed a lot. And my motives haven't always been good. And my actions haven't always been pure. But every one of us will stand. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. these people in John chapter 5 are going to stand before their one one day who they are accusing. And if they stand before him in their own self-righteousness, their eternity is bleak. Their eternity is eternal fire forever. But for those whom he has given life as he desires, we will also stand before him And do you know why we won't have judgment of loss of salvation? 
because we are wearing the righteousness of the judge. The one who will judge us. We're wearing his righteousness. We're clothed in the righteousness of the judge. And if he's guilty, then I'm guilty. But he's not. He's judging in righteousness. He's judging on that day in righteousness. And you and the judge, if you're a believer, you're wearing the same righteousness. That's how I can stand before him. The one who will judge every human being when he looks at every person, it will be their righteousness or his righteousness. If you're a believer here tonight, take comfort in that, that he brought you to life as he chose to be. And that's why you have passed out of death into life. And that's why one day you will stand before him dressed in the garments of the judge. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words tonight. We thank you, Lord, that we see the sovereign God in these verses. We see the omnipotent God in these verses. We see the God who has all power. Lord, to do as you please. And Father, we thank you that we have a hope to stand before you, the judge of all the world one day, and it's because of the work that you have completed. It is because you lived a perfect life. You died in our behalf. And Lord, you have imputed your righteousness to us. That is our only hope, Lord. That's the only hope that any creature has to stand before you and enter your kingdom. Father, let us never forget that. Let us understand who you are. Lord, let us strive for uh, righteousness and, Lord, continuance and sanctification because we will give a, an account of what we've done as a Christian. Lord, I pray that that stirs us and, and convicts us, Lord, to be, to be holy and upright in everything we do, not just the external actions, but the internal motives, Father. Lord, we thank you that you have power to heal physically, but God, we thank you that only you can heal spiritually. You're the one who brings us from death to life. And Lord, I pray that no matter how many times we hear those things that we were dead, but now we're alive, Lord, that they would never get old because they are the story of the gospel. They are the story of our hope. So Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit's help that you would begin to just let that uh, be just shown and manifest in our soul more than it ever has been. Lord, that none of us deserve life, but you give life to whom you desire. And Lord, I want to personally say to you, thank you for bringing life to this unworthy creature. Lord, to you be all the glory forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.